Big Swinging Stocks acknowledges the traditional custodians of Australia's lands, skies and waterways and pays respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Welcome back to Big Swinging Stocks. We are so excited to bring you a brand new series, Invest Like a... Well, you're going to find out very soon. Part of what makes investing so scary sometimes is the lack of transparency about what other people are doing to build their wealth. And while this is to show you what some other people are doing, normal and extraordinary Australians in their everyday life, we're more focused on their highs and their lows. But this is just what they've done. And so this episode and the rest of the series should not be taken to be financial, legal or tax advice. Our first guest, which I'm so excited about, and my favorite tax talker, which I'm definitely trademarking. Today, we're investing like a tax lawyer and a crypto tax lawyer at that. Please welcome Harrison Dell, director at Kadena Legal and Australia's best crypto tax lawyer. Welcome, Harry. Thanks, Alex. Really cool to be here. I'm so excited. It feels actually really fun to kind of break the fourth wall with you because I feel like sometimes our TikToks are just talking at each other and it's actually really cool to have an actual conversation with you. But tell our audience, who are you? What do you do? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a tax lawyer. I run my own law firm called Cadena Legal and we specialize in crypto tax law is one big part of what we do. We do a lot of Australian and international taxation as well. This is not your standard accounting business services offering where you do tax returns. We don't do tax returns. We do all the hard stuff. We do setting up business structures overseas. We do getting very low tax rates on particular kinds of business sales and mergers and all sorts of fun things, all the really pointy stuff. And our focus has been crypto for over a year now, my personal focus for a couple of years now, but we always stay pretty centered around technology. So Australian startups as well, international technology businesses. Technology is overarching theme for what we do at Cadena. And so how would you describe to people, I think you talked a little bit about what you do, but when do you think there's a handoff? Like when should people ring a tax lawyer? It's very rare that you would ring a tax lawyer directly. Most people will get the push from their accountant. And the accountant will say, hey, you're selling your business for a few million dollars. You may be eligible for some tax concessions time to bring in the tax lawyer or the tax specialist, because not all tax specialists are lawyers, some are accountants as well. I do get a lot of direct inquiries, particularly through TikTok, and people are probably surprised at the size of these inquiries, but multi-million dollar businesses looking at operating overseas, moving their head office to you know the UAE or Singapore or the US or wherever, that's definitely stuff where you need a lawyer involved and you need a tax lawyer because all of these decisions about how you set up your business primarily start with taxation and then into everything else after that. If it's not tax efficient, if you're going to be paying 50% tax, you're not going to do it. So it's kind of like GP to a specialist. So most people would go through their accountant. Exactly. Like the GP specialist is actually what I use with clients who don't understand what we do. The GP you'll see a bit and then you go to the heart surgeon and you don't go to the heart surgeon all the time because they're very expensive. Unless you need that, you don't want to talk to them. Yeah. Oh, it's a really good, I think, analogy for people who might have thought to themselves about getting in touch with you or someone like you. Go and see your GPs first, folks. Usually a GP first, but if you think you need me, you might need me. I'm always happy for a chat to sort of screen stuff and people think that they're wasting my time, but they're not because then I get to pass you on to my lovely accounting partners 
who enjoy me very much because I pass them business. Beautiful referral relationship. So you have a really interesting story coming into tax that I want to get into, but I want to get into it by asking a question we ask all our guests on the show, which is, what was your first investing memory? My first investing memory was, I think I was in my third or fourth year at uni studying law and I downloaded the Acorns app. Because I was like, well, I can't just spend all my money. Like this, this is throwback. Holy time. moly, that takes me back. Wow. Okay. I think it's called Raise now with a Z. And I remember I was like buying stuff, and it does the roundup. I was on Centrelink at the time. I was a student doing a little bit of work, and I remember it actually financially crippled me. I was down like fifty bucks a week, and I was like, oh wow, I can't afford to do that. And I had to sell it. And I remember, I think I lost like eighteen dollars on my portfolio in four weeks. And I was like, wow, that was stupid. So. It was clearly too early to invest at that stage. But yeah, that's my very first go at investing. It didn't go very well. That's a really good story because I think most people that we get on the show have this like enlightenment moment with investing. But I like that you tried it out and the lesson you learned was I'm not financially ready to invest, which I think is a very important one for young people who are very keen to just like jump in, put their life savings into an app or an investment. Look, I love the calculators and it's like if you invest $10 for the next 70 years, you'll be a trillionaire. But like the fact of it was like at 21 on I think about 16000 a year on youth allowance at the time and another sort of 5000 of employment income, it just actually wasn't viable to do. Yeah. And that's important for young people to know as well. Like you didn't have the financial foundation yet, but you went from there. You're now a director at Kadena. How did that investing journey? So you went from raise, you lost $18, that crippled you at 21. That's a lot of money. That's like five coffees at that time, considering inflation. That's right. That's right. How did you develop your investing philosophy from there? So I started my sort of graduate role as a lawyer and I was on yeah, about 60000 or so. And I really didn't like working 40 hours a week. It was not enjoyable, especially not for that sort of small money. And lawyers are very ambitious to you know make money. That's That much is known. And then I said, well, what's the maths of what I have to do? And I think like a lot of people, you stumble across the FIRE movement and you start looking at, well, if I put away $1,000 a month and I do the ETF thing, then, you know, when I'm 50, I'll have $2 million outside of super plus my super, which was pretty good where I was working. You know, I could easily retire at sort of 50, 55 pretty comfortably. And I did math and it looked pretty nice. I was like, okay. But then I sort of step back and go, well, that requires that I work for the next about 30, 35 years. And I'm already a bit sick of it. So I don't think that's going to last. Nevertheless, we had nothing else to do because while I was, you know, investing in ETFs and ASX 200 stuff and things like that, it was more money in the scheme of things. And I said this to my, my now fiance, what I'm really investing in is my personal skills and my network. I can print a lot more money as a tax lawyer than I can passively investing in ETFs at this stage of my life. It was still quite early. So it was certainly good to do it. And we did it. And I think we made a little bit of money, but it wasn't really worth the time stress and research that I did. However, I do have those skills now and I understand how that works, which has been useful going forward. But that was sort of the next stage of the journey was we have to do something, not just do work, get money, spend money, because that's a great way to stay poor. So we knew something had to change and it had to happen early in life, not when I'm 45 or 50. That lesson around increasing your earning potential has been silenced, like almost drowned out by the allure of wealth. 
because you have to make money to then invest money. You can make a lot of money and spend it stupidly or spend it on just stuff that you don't care about. Because you could have been a very well-paid tax lawyer. You're now a director, which is a slightly different level of pressure, I'm sure, but also a very different wealth experience, I'm sure. Absolutely. And skipping forward from baby lawyer days to today, like my earning capacity has increased massively. If I had focused on saving my pennies, that would have been an effective strategy. But if that was at the expense of me moving on this very fast journey towards very high income amounts, which I'm not at yet, just disclaimer for everybody, but I wouldn't have invested. I wouldn't have taken those, those risky journeys to get where I am, where, you know, my income is significantly greater than 60,000 a year now. And in future years, I hope it to be even significantly greater than where it is now. That's certainly possible running your own business to make millions of dollars. Would you say that this line of thinking is common amongst lawyers? Do you think that we're good at taking those calculated risks? No, lawyers are so bad at it. So I'm 30. There are not many 30-year-old directors of law firms around. That's a pretty impressive career trajectory, Harry. Like genuinely, that's not easy. Thank you. I put it down to my incredible impatience. I didn't stay in a job longer than two years without leaving. The best thing I ever did is I negotiated a higher title than I deserved. I negotiated a senior associate title. Didn't cost them anything. They're like, yeah, sure, whatever. But it meant something when you went to your next job, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. I got fired from that job, actually. And then I said, oh, I'm a senior associate. And then I said, of course you are. You've been a senior associate this whole time. So absolutely. No idea what that sort of pressure really was. But it then got me in the door at a firm as a senior associate, being probably a little bit stretched. I was responsible for, you know, clients directly and everything like that. I learned very quickly. And then after that point, I go, well, I was doing all the work myself. I was bringing in all the clients myself. Tax talk was going excellently. And then I go, well, I'm taking all the risk, but I'm not getting the reward. I go, well, why don't I get both? So people often do it the wrong way around where there's no reward there yet. They take the risk before the reward's right in front of them. And entrepreneurs have a tendency to take high risk, non-lawyers especially. I may be a bit of a different breed of lawyer in that way, but people will take a, a lot of risk for not a lot of reward. It's the same investing philosophy as ETFs over time makes money. We all know that, not financial advice, of course. But being in business doesn't always make money. But when it does, it can make you a lot of money. And that's just like basic risk-reward ratio, right? The higher the risk, the higher reward, but also the higher the loss. But I think what's interesting about lawyers as a profession is we are generally quite high paid on average, even if you take into our poor little grads earning salaries and earning below minimum wage when they're doing doc review for 18 hours a day. But that's okay because eventually they do start earning a lot of money. But the calculated risk component is something I find very interesting about our profession because I think that for a bunch of people who are very good at identifying risk, they're not very good at stack ranking it and then making a decision. I think a lot of lawyers don't invest, for example, outside of super. Because I did a financial well-being seminar literally just about things that might make you feel anxious at night and like simple, simple things you can do, like call your super fund, call your brokerage, find out how much they're charging, like simple things like that. And at the ASX did a study that said that like, you know, 9 million Australians invest outside of super. And of those, there's like an additional 2 million people who are thinking about investing in the next 12 months. They did that survey in 2021 at the height of like the stock market frenzy. And I polled my colleagues and I said, okay, which of you don't invest? 40% don't invest outside of super. A lot of them did say, oh, my partner 
invest. And I thought that was very interesting as well. And I was like, nah. Yeah, it's not quite it, is it? No. Because if you don't invest outside super, you need to get to 65, 67. I forget what it is now. They change it. I think it's 60 and then you transition to retirement. You can have that income stream. But still, that's a long time to work. A long time. If you're 30, if you're 40, that's still 20, 30 years of working. And you're locked into it. You don't have another way to earn income from your time and your exertion, which like lawyers are lucky in that it's not backbreaking work. But particularly people who are in very physical jobs, they have a huge risk of losing their income earning potential before they hit preservation age. And there's no shortcuts really to get that money out early, which is, I think, a bit of a failing in that system. But it means that you need to be putting more than five, ten thousand away in your emergency fund. You need to be putting away serious amounts of money over 10, 20 years. And it needs to be growing in a way that's more than just your bank account if you are investing for that time period. So let's get into the specs of your portfolio. And before we do, obviously, I think our audience is sick of me saying this, but it bears repeating. We just talked about everyone having different risk profiles or even risk tolerances to take up investing. This is just going to be examples. It's obviously not tax or legal or even financial advice, but it is helpful, I think, to lift the hood under what other people are doing to build their wealth because it might inspire you to do some research yourself about how that may be maybe not, could be appropriate for you. So I want to go back to the beginning. If you skip forward from Acorns, what was your first investment and do you still hold it? My first investment, I think was whatever the ASX 200 ETF is and no, I sold it. It's gone. Okay, cool. What triggered the sale? Circling back again, I'm extremely impatient. (laughs) Wasn't making money fast enough. No, needed the money for stuff. Yeah. It went somewhere. I'm not particularly frivolous with it, but we needed the cash for some other reason. And, you know, being locked up for 10 years in an ETF just wasn't quite it for us. Fair enough. Your investing preferences, importance changed. What was the most recent thing you bought? The most recent thing that I've invested in is actually a startup that I've co-founded around Smart Contract where I had to put in my own cash for that. Oh, that's awesome. And it wasn't a huge amount, but it was a material amount of money. Was significant. And number one, I'm young, so I've got a long timeline to take risk. Number two, even with that being said, I probably take enormous financial risks, but that's on the basis of I have a very large income that can replace $10,000 lost on something is not going to cripple my portfolio. Because there's significant cash flow coming in. That's right. There's significant cash flow happening. And if that 10000 goes to 500000 which is what I expect some of them to do, on these calculated risks, which is what we're really coming back to, that's a good portfolio at the end of it. And one that suits your risk tolerance as well and your age and your impatience. You've talked about your keenness to get out of the workforce as soon as possible. I've got a very good friend of mine and he made ungodly amounts of money by providing professional services and receiving equity in companies in lieu of payment. And number one, it's a very tax-effective way to operate. Because under Australian tax law, if I receive equity in a company and it meets certain conditions, I can receive that tax-free. So I've got multiple stakes in multiple companies ranging between five or 10,000 worth to some of them are probably worth over 100,000 now, extremely illiquid, but some of them I'm very bullish on. Other ones, they had no money. And I was like, well, give me your left finger instead and I'll take that. And when it's worth a lot of money, I'll sell it. But 
very tax effective to take on those advisory roles. The only reason I can take those calculated risks is because what I see is the inner workings of so many private businesses and tech businesses. And I know if an idea is going to be terrible, I don't always know when it's going to be good. I'm not going to say that I'm good at that, but I have seen probably thousands of tech businesses in the last two or three years. And when I think it's terrible, I'm 99% accurate that it's terrible. And I tell them that I go, you need to reformulate your idea or you don't have the expertise on your team, or you've got competitors in this market who are entrenched. And it's particularly easy to see in crypto where you see people doing the same thing somebody else is doing. And you're like, they're a billion dollar company now and you're nothing. Why would people use you? Oh, we're just the same thing. It's like, yeah, okay, come on guys. So the ones that I do pick up equity in, most of them are companies that I have a very strong belief in that are going to be quite large in this country. A lot of lawyers that are in this space do the same. So take both advisor style equity and the fees might be reduced to help them get off the ground, for instance, or they might just invest their own capital into their clients, which you've got to be a bit careful of. You've got conflict of interest issues with that, which you need to deal with. So if you're a lawyer listening to this, speak with the Law Society. I've spoken with them many times about this sort of stuff. And I've also advised many of those clients to seek external counsel for specific things that I would have a conflict for as being an equity holder. Calculated risks. I see a heap of businesses. There's some that I go, these ones are ones that I would support with my own exertion to earn potentially an outsized return from that. And coming back to, to, to my good friend who did that, you know, he's worth a good $20, $30 million now because he picked up these equity positions in some of Australia's unicorns going back 10 years that he got at minuscule valuations. It's a very fast, risky path to wealth, but I've hedged that risk massively because I'd still have a high income generating legal practice. I was hoping we'd come to that because it's like you can't put the dog, the cat, and the emergency fund into these early fledged startups. That's criminal. But if you are doing it with what for you is probably disposable, discretionary, investable income, and you know, if it stays at a thousand and never becomes anything, you've still got a salary coming in that's paying the bills, keeping you alive. Exactly. So it's hedged. It's like, well, the salary I pay myself is okay. Look, the firm is not a top tier firm making billions of dollars. It does okay at the moment. We're still scaling up, but there's more than enough income there where I can support myself. And then when I say, well, I've got the opportunity to go in with these businesses, that kind of is me building the portfolio. Instead of doing this work for nothing or taking an advisory role, I want $20,000. Let me just do this stuff for free as an advisor and pick up that equity. That's the investing. Yeah. The reason I was so excited about this series, and especially you, because I, when we talked a little bit before the show about what you're investing in, there's all the traditional avenues that you've mentioned, but I think what I want to get into is the whole portfolio because you have some very interesting building blocks of wealth that I don't think are talked about as much across the fire space, which tends to focus on buy three ETFs, chuck every dollar at it, live on noodles, and in 10 years, you'll be retired. So you obviously have the investment in your business as a partner, as a director in Kadena, taking up early equity positions in businesses, but talk us through what the whole portfolio looks like. Yeah. Okay. Let's start right at the top. I did and still do a lot of advice for very wealthy families and they split their portfolio into three sort of distinct things. Number one is as a business generates income, may eventually sell the business and it changes the portfolio, but as a basis, they have a business and these wealthy families, it might be in grain or 
professional services, not that common, or it could be property development, relatively common, things like that, where it generates income for the family. And they've then got a high growth, sort of capital growth side where they might invest in real property or stocks or anything else, joint ventures with people, private businesses, things like that. A risk-adjusted portfolio. There's usually a good amount of real property in there. And the third one is sort of more income-generating investments. So if the business doesn't do so well one year, they've still got 500 grand of income coming into the group. That's a very general way I see very wealthy groups set up. You got to first have that income. If you don't have the income, you can't do the rest. So I've got some income, cool. The early stage investments portfolio is that sort of growth aspect. It doesn't pay any dividends. Tech companies with VC investors don't pay dividends, of course, but they grow at value. And that's that bet there. I probably don't need to do any hedging for that yet because I don't have enough money yet. One day, maybe. The other side is a lot of crypto assets. And it's a lot of strangely conservative ones. So a lot of stable coins, a lot of staking sort of mechanisms where it actually does generate a decent income and it grows. And I basically use it discretionarily when I see a client or a project that I am relatively familiar with and I know that it's going to be not terrible. Because being not terrible in crypto space means it's actually got a pretty good chance of being good. So I see projects where I know them personally and they're trustworthy and they're not going to steal my money. Like that's leagues ahead for most investors in the space. Like they just don't know that. But I can go, no, this one is a trustworthy project. They might still stuff it up. But I basically use the income from that to reinvest into that side. So I've split it up into those three sort of compartments. And as it grows, my risk tolerance will drop. You know, I want to buy my own home. I'm still renting. My rent is ungodly expensive. And yeah, adding on the personal home, the main residence is usually the first step. There is, you know, rent vesting and things like that. I don't think that's going to work for us. We want a home home. And then after that is when you start looking at that real property exposure. Yeah. So I like that strategy. I haven't heard that before, except from you, actually, because I think you made a TikTok about it. But it kind of counters that traditional advice that I've heard before about all millionaires have seven streams of income. And this is a lot simpler and it's a lot more flexible because not everyone's going to have royalty income, but some people might have, as you say, something that's got capital growth, like an investment in their business or an investment in someone else's business. So overall, what's your net worth position now? It's kind of hard with the random early stage stuff, but based on the latest valuations for those, which are about 12 months out of date and the value of my crypto, it's about 200,000. And I know a lot of people are very proud that they saved, you know, $100,000. And I say, well, I never could do that. I never did it. The only reason I'm here is my immense risk tolerance, which is not a path open to everybody. And it's also good to remember that this portfolio could be down to zero in six months' time. But you'd still have your salary coming in. That's right. Yeah. The main asset, and then this is not this is not in the two hundred thousand dollar valuation, is my business. So my business has got two staff. We're looking at adding more. Our workflow is excellent and growing very rapidly. We're getting a lot of market share just on reputation. People are like, hey, it's that tax guy that makes tax videos on TikTok. That's pretty funny. And then they pay me thousands of dollars to do advice, which is what I really wanted. Yeah. First of all, your videos are incredibly informative. And even just dispelling the myth that crypto is taxable on TikTok, I thought was one of your 
<laughs> most valuable contributions to the Australian tax office, actually. Yeah, probably. You'll like this. I did a submission to the Board of Tax, which is the think tank for government on, on tax stuff, and they wanted to know about crypto. And I suggested that the ATO needs to be marketing and educating where the people are, and I'm doing half the job for them, and I invited the Commissioner, Chris Jordan, to come on TikTok Live with me anytime he wants. There's an incredible amount of work and effort that goes into that, but you're obviously reaping the rewards of creating that channel, right? It's like a, it's a marketing channel. It's an incredibly effective one. The amount of I have learned about tax that I probably never use in my life, but I find immensely interesting as well, like all the case law. So I highly recommend everyone check out Harry's TikTok. But 200K net worth, possibly zero, possibly multi-millions. Possibly. One, one of the three. Yeah, one, one of the three. I love that your why is not working. I think that's incredibly bold for lawyers to say because we are renowned for being, I think, externally validated by our jobs and our, our personalities are just our professional lives. So there's something very bold and brave about that as well. But where do you want to go? Like what's the ultimate goal? If we're talking utopian net worth, utopian retire early, when is it and what is the figure, if there is one. The goal is sort of in five to 10 years to have people in my firm doing a lot of that stuff for me. And of course, promoting people as partners to reflect what they're doing at the firm. I'm more than happy to do that. In that time, we want to generate enough income and have these investments pay off where I want to have, I think 20 million is what I realistically need. And that that sounds super gluttonous. And I'm so sorry if that upsets anybody. But when I go there, is that my number? Yes, it is. That's to go, yep, the house is paid off. I don't have to do anything. At that point, you've got immense freedom to do really cool stuff like angel investing. You can be mentoring other professionals or businesses and getting even further sweat equity in those businesses. You can generate another 20 million just doing that, but you can't do that until you've made the money first. And I see so many investors at this level, they provide immense value to that tech ecosystem and immense value to society. And no doubt somebody is screaming at this podcast right now when I say that investors provide value to society. But where else is a startup founder, the smartest man alive, the next Einstein with the great next idea? You can't go to a VC and get funding with just an idea almost every time. You can, however, find these networks of angels and get $50,000, $100,000. And they can introduce you to their other rich friends and venture capitalist friends and say, this guy is good. He knows what he's doing. And that is how so many large businesses started in this country. So many unicorns in this country, they start at that basis at that grassroots level. You know, I'm involved in the tech community. I'm heavily involved in the crypto community. If someone said, hey, I've got this new protocol, I need 50K of seed capital right now, I don't have $50,000. But when I do, facilitating those ideas forward is I think what I want to do. And as part of that wealth portfolio, I've still got, hopefully, a stake in that law firm, unless they kick me out if I'm not doing anything. Hopefully still bringing in some clients for that, as well as mentoring these businesses. It's just the ecosystem works. It's heavily geared towards businesses, but that's where I see the value in this country. Buying houses and sitting on them doesn't create value in the economy. The value in the economy is businesses. That's what generates value. It makes jobs and growth, you know? So for you, it's actually not about retiring. For you, it's about the purest of all concepts, freedom. Yeah, it's freedom. I want to be able to play 
a PS5 or whatever it is, PS10 at that point, and do some like bizarre advisory stuff and not have to go, oh, I need to pay the bills. I can't do this. I have to get off this call. I've got 10 client meetings waiting. I want to be able to go like, I believe in this guy. And if I threw my weight behind him, that means something and that we can get something done. Yeah. If you were 20 again, knowing all that you know now, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? I wouldn't become a tax lawyer. Oh, really? No, no. There are a lot of kinds of law where you can master them in sort of like two to four years. Commercial litigation, you get really good at it. Then it becomes your aptitude and your appetite and your network. But in tax law, it's extremely technical. What would you have recommended to your 20-year-old self studying law? I would have said go into insolvency. Interesting. Okay. There is money to be made in insolvency, way more money than in tax law. The stuff I'm doing is too risky, very niche. I'm happy I'm here, but I wouldn't do it again. I was just very, very lucky. But if I wanted a job in law and I wanted to be able to make lots of money and do it myself, I would have said, go to insolvency. It's like litigation, it's advisory, liquidators pay you fees. It's never going away. Recession-proof industry for sure. Yeah. The only thing that sort of brought it down recently was all the COVID concessions. But yeah, that's kind of a black swan event for insolvency practitioners. Now they're back at it. Yeah. Because all those businesses were not really operating very well before they got injected with cash. So final question, what would you credit as your most significant contributor to your net worth or even just moving forward? What do you think will be the most significant contributor to your net worth? The biggest contributor to my net worth was my grad role. I didn't study tax law at uni. I didn't have any knowledge before I started in the job, but I got a role at the ATO as an auditor and as a lawyer, which is a very competitive role. And the only reason I got that role is that I had 10 years of customer service behind me, not because of my marks. They were not very good. I had a pass average. Actually, I had a below a pass average because we're on a like zero to seven scale. So my GPA when I applied was 3.8 because I had a few fails on my record because I um, was clearly not focusing enough at university. And then I, I, the lowest I could put was four. And I was like, well, I guess four. And then I was like, well, I have to work the whole year to get it above. And I did. So I didn't lie to the ATO. But that's probably the most significant. The second most significant thing is I got a job at a cinema. And that job is what landed me that role at the ATO. Because every other graduate had never worked, or not many of them, most of them had never worked in a proper business before. They didn't understand dealing with people. But no, I've dealt with thousands of people. I was a manager at a cinema when I was leaving, and they really liked that. I applied for like 200 grad work roles. That's the only one I oh got. God, same. That was hellish. It was the worst. And I remember in December, a friend of mine said, oh, you got to start applying for grad roles now. I'm like, now? But like, not the coming year, the year after. They're like, yeah. I was like, oh, okay. I was doing like three to five a day for those first few months. It was like all the government ones and everything. And they take so long. All the applications are like full-time jobs. I was doing it at the cinema at night. Last movie goes in and then I'll do the applications. But if I never got that job, I don't know what I would have had, but I don't think I would have been in tax law. I love that you talked about that because A, customer service is, is highly underrated. I think you know, when I was 20, I wanted a cool job and didn't want to have to deal with people anymore. And I've probably had similar decade of experience, but it is literally the most helpful. Half the time you are just wrangling an answer seven different ways from someone until they tell you what you're actually looking for. 
you know, if anyone in hospitality or customer service who's like worried about not having an industry relevant job, here's two lawyers telling you that it's the best thing. And it stands out from everyone who maybe had a parent that worked a law firm that just got them a job as a paralegal. You're going to be the outlier if you can substitute that with a bit of substance and a bit of drive for the job that you're going for. This has kind of turned into a quasi-financial career advice segment, which I like because the whole purpose of this was I think your underlying thread that what you do is just as, if not more important as where you put that money that you get from that job. So start making oodles of cash, folks, and then you can start investing. (laughs) I had a client of mine, he's like, I don't know why I've had this success. And I told him it was because he built that knowledge and then he put it to work. He didn't do it too early. There wasn't really a too late, but he waited till he had enough knowledge of a particular kind of business. And then he goes, I know what I need to know to do this now. And he invested it himself. And that's what put him from $0 net wealth or so, maybe, you know, a bit of cash to multi-million dollar company CEO who owns 80% of the equity. That's the way you do it is by investing in yourself. You can't get there with a job. And I know you like jobs, Alex, because you've got one. And jobs are great because jobs can pay you, you know, between 60 and plus thousand a year. And it's very dependable. But if you've got a job, you should be accumulating knowledge. Yeah. Don't skip to the Lamborghini. Get a job. Get that foundation. I just think nine to fives are a fantastic way of getting people out of poverty. I think they're a fantastic way of establishing a stable middle class. That and the house, right? You want your biggest living expense to be paid off before you hit retirement and you want stable income. But I completely agree with you. No one's going to become a multimillionaire from an 85K. Well, actually, that's not true. There's people that do it, but it honestly sounds like hellish and miserable to do it like that. More importantly is I love what you've said it. Like get that nine to five when you're in your early 20s, learn everything you can possibly learn and then build that side business or go and be an entrepreneur, but do it once you have the knowledge that quite frankly, people, you know, before you ahead of you have already gone and tread it and then wear down that path. My favorite client, when he came to me recently and he was a ex big four consultant for like 15, 20 years, ran big complex projects, made other people lots and lots and lots of money. He eventually got fed up with it and he left and he started his own thing and he knew exactly what he had to do. He came to me and he's like, I need A, B, C, D, E. I was like, great, here you go. And then he's like, do you know anybody that does this? And I go, yeah, I do. People, that business is about to launch. And like this, one of those businesses that I have absolute faith in because it's the person at the helm knows exactly what they're doing. Competent manager. Yeah. Yeah. He, he built that expertise in the nine to five, or I think the nine to 10, maybe at big four. And then he just took that, all that value is that's him investing in himself. And then he can make multi-million dollar businesses. I have no doubt that business will succeed. And even if he doesn't get it right the first time, he knows how to deal with all those things because he has that complex project management background, industry knowledge. He's making the deals. You've got to understand what you're doing to pull that off. And he's one of the guys who does. And that's the secret sauce. That's the secret sauce. Know what you're doing. Harry, this has been so good. Loved chatting to you. I think the ingredients of wealth are there. And how you make a chocolate cake is up to you, but here's at least one recipe for all of our listeners that have been listening today. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been such a pleasure chatting to you. It was very fun to be here. Thanks, Alex. Oh, my pleasure. And to all of our listeners at Big Swinging Stocks, we'll see you next week. Bye. 
This podcast is brought to you by SelfWealth and operates under AFSL number 421789 as general advice only. Because we can't take into account your personal objectives or financial situation, you should seek independent professional financial advice before making any investment decision. For more information and our financial disclosure statement, check the show notes.